Welcome everyone to another episode of the SNEM Rams Ask a Chair podcast series. My name is Hamza Ajaz. I'm your host today, and I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Craig Goolsby, who is the department chair at Harbor UCLA. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to talk with you. Most definitely. So let's start at the very beginning. What drew you to the field of emergency medicine? I think I was always interested in it, and I can remember really early, as a nine-year-old actually, my grandmother got hit by a car. She was walking across the street, and hit in the crosswalk, and in retrospect, probably wasn't that seriously injured, but for me at the time, it was devastating. I came over to her house and found her laying on the couch, all bandaged up, and, and really felt like I wanted to do something to help, and that feeling of wanting to help in that emergency situation was so powerful that I, I really was interested in a career in medicine then, and I always thought back to that ever after that in terms of the type of medicine that I want to do. And then as I went to medical school and had a chance to rotate in a variety of different things, found out that I like lots of different things and particularly like the emergency aspect of all those. And so I wound up being a natural fit. What is it about emergency medicine? You say you like the emergency aspect of it. We don't deal with emergencies. We deal with primary care. We deal with non-emergent uh, causes as well. So what was it particular about uh, your rotations in the ED that drew you to it eventually? Yeah, I think it was the rotations in the ED and then the emergency aspect of every other type of medicine. So whether it was the emergency aspect of surgery or family medicine or, or pediatrics or whatever, that part always appealed to me. And I think it's really the chance to connect very quickly with someone when they need you most and to be able to do something in that moment to, to deal with the chaos in a way that's calm and organized and helpful and, and to be able to do something, take that moment of crisis and really turn it into something where you can help somebody and make the best of it. Yeah, I think sometimes that's very apparent when patients come in, I'm worried because of blank, and then sometimes you kind of get to that, why they're actually here, when you're actually getting ready to discharge them or dispo them, they're like, I was actually here because of a work note or a school note, or actually it's like, hey, I'm worried that the symptoms I'm having are representative of cancer, that is a history of my family, and that's why they're actually here. So I think getting to understand like what, why they're there and trying to do that in a relatively efficient and time, timely manner is one of the important parts of what we do. So I, I definitely agree with you there. Absolutely. I think we, we are probably the best at that of anyone. We can come into a room and assess the situation quickly and, and find out in a very short period of time what, what really is the motivations for the patient being there. And, and of course, not all of them are truly emergencies, and we're happy to take care of those patients as well, but, but often they are emergencies, and so we're, we're the right people to be there and, and help them when they need help the most. So let's transition a little bit to some of your interests beyond the clinical aspect of emergency medicine. So you're considered an expert on military medicine in terms of knowledge transfer to the civilian side. So what are some of the most impactful advances within emergency medicine that, have, that we've come to as a result of military medicine? You know, for better or worse, medicine tends to advance a lot during wartime, right? There's just, there's so many injuries and there's so many new things that are tried as people are are hurt in these these devastating conflicts that it really does advance medicine. And so I think the most recent wars that we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan are really no exception to that. And so we've seen a number of different advances that have occurred because of our direct experiences on those battlefields. And most of them really come from what we call tactical combat casualty care, which is sort of the new battlefield medicine paradigm. And I think on a basic level, probably the most impactful things are that we've reorganized the priorities. So there was some work done by the military to study why people were dying on the battlefield. And when they did that, they found out that they were bleeding to death. And so a reorganization of priorities to say, let's start with bleeding first, and then go to airway, and then go to breathing, actually wound up saving a lot of, lot of lives. And so we've seen some of that change take place as well in our civilian world now, where we're often really trying to stop life-threatening bleeding quickly. We still care about airway, but we're not prioritizing intubating the patient necessarily. We could go to help with their airway, but we really have to stop them from bleeding because we know the morbidity and mortality 
is worse if they don't. So I think that reorganization has a really big impact. Blood is dramatically changed from the battlefield experience. Instead of just giving people red cells, we felt like, well, there's more to blood than just red cells, so why don't we also give them some plasma and some platelets and these other pieces that help. And then, of course, some of the techniques that we use to stop bleeding are not new. They've been around, actually, for thousands of years. There are these ancient Roman tourniquets, for example, that were used many years ago. But the sort of reintroduction of those in the most modern conflicts has affected the civilian world a lot. And so being able to use limb tourniquets to stop bleeding, other types of gauzes like combat gauze, et cetera, they're going to be able to stop bleeding quickly have all been effective in military to civilian knowledge translation. Yeah, I think one of the, what you were alluding to earlier in terms of your primary surveys. So I think, at least in medical school, we are historically taught with your ABCs, and we kind of talk about that as well in terms of your airway breathing circulation, but there's a little bit more of a paradigm shift now where it's like a Marsh algorithm, which you're referring to as well with, it's like a massive, you know, life-threatening hemorrhage, then your airway, and subsequently afterwards as well. So that's the one that I, you know, most readily recognize in terms of one of the advancements, along with tourniquet use, that we, you know, routinely apply in emergency medicine. So what are so that's some of the stuff that we are doing. What are some of the things that you feel are common practice or common knowledge or just common in military medicine, but you know we haven't necessarily adapted those for use in the ED, but potentially could be in the future. Yeah, it's an interesting question always to think about what will happen in the future. Yeah, so a good thought exercise. I think. Right now, we're in, fortunately, a bit of a lull in terms of combat operations. So compared to you know, what was happening, let's say, 10 years ago, there's much less combat. So I think military medicine is advancing a little slower now, which on the whole is, again, a good thing. That means we're, we're less at war at this point. Uh, I think there are some military practices that we probably will see translate and are translating in certain sectors right now. So one is threshold blood use. So while this is not an FDA-approved thing in the U.S., it is approved in combat. And so it's not uncommon to have a situation. I took care of a patient, for example, in Iraq that came in with devastating pelvis injuries and blood fusely. So there was a call put out to the base, and we had about 100 soldiers that respond, and they literally lined up in the hallway. Their blood was drawn and was rushed right into the operating room or the ICU and transfused into the patient. So, of course, there are a lot of safety considerations and things to think about that. The military population has a way of being screened that's different than the civilian population. But I know there are some folks that are working on that for mass casualty situations right now. So I know there's a program in San Antonio, for example, that pre-screens people and has sort of a plan to be able to bring those people in if there's really an overwhelming demand for blood. And I think that that practice, as we are able to wind up making it as safe as possible, may be something that we can consider using in the future. I think for things that the military is not doing currently now that it's considering and looking at would be things around semi-autonomous medical care. So wherever we can use devices or artificial intelligence or things to do monitoring or patient interventions that we don't necessarily have to have a human at the bedside all the time to do, are really appealing in the military setting when you think about long distance or lack of definitive care close to where the injuries are happening. And I think some of that technology and some of those things, as they get developed, we'll likely see in the future for our use as well. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more there. You know, I'm excited to see what what the future holds in that regard in, in terms of this thought exercise. I want to transition a little bit to something that you were alluding to earlier in terms of tourniquet use and you know bleeding control. And you've done a lot of research on you know stop the bleed campaign and tourniquet use particularly. You know, it is very readily applicable to what we do on a day to day basis in emergency medicine, but. From a perspective of advocacy, that is part of what we do in, in, in this specialty as well. 
What are some ways that emergency physicians can advocate for, you know, increased tourniquet use or more knowledge of tourniquets and stop the bleed campaigns in the communities that we all, you know, practice and live in? Yeah, I think there's probably a number of different ways to think about that. So one is just to get involved on a very, you know, local kind of granular level in your department, in your community. And so you can take, there are a variety of different stop the bleed courses out there. Um, ASAP offers a course, Red Cross offers courses. American College of Surgeons offers courses, so there's a whole whole bunch of different stop to bleed options. So finding an option that you know works for you and makes sense for the learner population that you're trying to reach, whether it's your medics or you know someone at your kid's school or or kind of wherever you're trying to get to, uh, taking the course and then becoming a teacher or an advocate for others to be teaching, talking to your parent teacher associations, for example, to try to make sure that. In your community, your medics, your department is staffed to use it, your EMS system is staffed to use it, and that your community is growing. On a little more macro level, we could probably do some things to challenge our organizations to be more proactive in this space, particularly around some of the trauma care. So the American College of Surgeons does a terrific job being an advocate for injured patients and setting standards that hospitals have to abide by. And I think there's space in the emergency medicine world for us to be partners in that as well. And sometimes I think they're, they certainly take the lead on those things, which is great, but I think we could be a strong voice to advocate for the injured. We know trauma is leading to death of young people, cause of death for young people in the country. It's always a top killer for people overall. And the more we as a specialty can say, these are not just accidents, but this is a predictable you know, pathology that's going to happen to our patients and be an advocate for that. An advocate for quick response, whether it's in the community, via EMS, in the department, to help these patients, uh, I think will be it would be helpful. Okay, so depending on you know like what you're interested in in terms of what the target population is, there's resources available. And I appreciate you you know you're mentioning some of them in terms of at the local level and the nationally and organizational level as well. But but I agree that emergency medicine can definitely partner with the surgeons in this as well. Yeah, and one thing I would just add is you know to be familiar with what's happening in your local area was. Um, I'm fortunate to be able to go to Sacramento recently and, and offer testimony on a bill for public access trauma kits. And there are many bills in many states and in local municipalities that could use the support of subject matter experts, which we tend to be in this area, to be able to say, this is going to be helpful for whatever it is, school children, you know, communities, for the emergency response system, et cetera. And so being familiar with kind of those things and being a voice of credibility there can help as well. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Uh, let's transition now a little bit beyond the clinical arena and talk about the 2020 workforce report uh, in terms of there being a surplus of you know between seven ten thousand uh, emergency physicians by 2030. So we're coming up on that in about seven years from now. Uh, what are your thoughts on the? What is your interpretation of that report? Fact, fiction, somewhere in between. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think future prognostication is always challenging. It's, it's a model, and there's some, yeah. you know, by by virtue, they're all they're, it's, it's flawed. Regardless, any model that you do, there's other factors there. But, I want, but what are your thoughts? I think it's valuable to obviously consider these questions because we want to try to make sure that for the the health of our emergency medicine system, that we're right sizing our workforce with that system. In terms of that specific report, I think that for a variety of reasons, it's probably not going to turn out to be wholly accurate. And so, how accurate it is. Again, a little difficult to tell, but just in the intervening time, you know, with uh, COVID, and then obviously we're, you know, we're recording this uh, relatively soon after the, the match results have come out this year, which are really shocking and upsetting for a lot of people and concerning about what this means for the future of our specialty. Uh, so I think the report is going to turn out to be inaccurate in terms of having this massive overage. 
What I do think the report is, is useful to highlight, though, is there are a number of workforce challenges that we're facing. And so I think a lot of our workforce challenges really face or really stem from the, the environment in which we're practicing in. And there are a number of things that are really challenging about the environment that we're practicing in right now. We're seeing nursing shortages that are across the country that don't just affect BED, but obviously affect the entire hospital and beyond the hospital, and that makes it difficult to move patients through. And it's really made boarding become a problem, which has been a problem for many years, but it's a problem now, unlike it's ever been in the past. There's so much of it, it's so ubiquitous throughout the system, and it leads to a lot of problems. It's frustrating for the physicians working in it, probably frustrating for the medical students who are seeing the physicians being frustrated as they're on their interview rotations. It's bad for patient care for a variety of reasons. And so I think we really are going to have to work on fixing that, which I think there are fixes, and I think that it will get better. I don't think this is a permanent problem we're going to face. But I think as we're going through these, these significant operational challenges right now, and we're coming out of COVID, which was a really difficult and stressful time for a lot of people to be a part of, but that whole piece of burnout and, and kind of the challenge we're facing, I think it's affecting our students I think it's probably causing some of our physicians to leave the workforce. And ultimately, I think what's going to happen for this report in a few years is the overage that we anticipated is not going to be there. And we're going to need lots of emergency physicians. Hopefully our, our best and brightest, as we've been so fortunate to get in years past, will continue to join our ranks and we'll be able to have a strong emergency workforce in the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more there. You know, where it's been a lot, you know, a tough two to three years now and our students have been rotating with us, seeing, you know, what it's like to be on the front lines and it's been stressful. I love what I do. You know, I'm proud to say that I'm an emergency physician that wouldn't trade it for any other specialty, but it is hard what we do, you know, and students have been exposed to that for the last few years. And there's a lot of other factors that play into the workforce report, some of the, the news articles that have come out in recent months as well, also what the actual clinical environment has been more recently. But I think it's a little bit of a market correction to some extent where by the time we get to 2030, it won't be that, you know, significant surplus. I don't know what that number is going to be because I'm not a modeling expert by any means, but I, I also agree that we won't be anywhere close to what they're predicting to be based off of that initial report that was not considering COVID in the first place. Okay, all right. I appreciate that. In terms of now looking at, you know, we talked about the workforce and what the job market kind of is going to look like and what it's somewhat looking like right now. You practice, you're hiring, not to put it words in your mouth, not that you're hiring or not, but you work, you know, on the West Coast. What is the arena right now in terms of, you know, job market here, both in the, particularly in the academic setting, on the West Coast and then also nationally as well? I think it's, the job market's, it's regional and variable. And so there are certainly more markets, especially if you're in, you know, highly popular urban areas, the job markets are always going to be tougher there. So I anticipate that, you know, the D.C. area, Los Angeles, New York, some of our major metropolitan areas, Lots of people want to live there. Lots of people want to practice in these kind of urban, busy emergency departments. And so I think you're going to find that, that probably those are were more difficult in other parts of the country previously and probably still are more difficult in other parts of the country to find work. Uh, on the other hand, I think that we're also, people are, are finding work. I don't think that we're having problems with like, people that cannot get a job. Maybe it might be your second choice sometimes instead of your first choice, but I think that people are really finding uh, places, and we feel like for our residents, people are lining up with uh, jobs that they're very happy with, uh, that fit them very well, and you know, a wide variety of different practice settings, whether it's community settings or academic settings, etc. So I, I think that the, the current job market for people looking for a job is, is strong, and I think people are finding, uh, finding things that they're happy with. Yeah, I'm sure the listeners will appreciate it and feel reassured hearing that. 
And I, and I think part of that, in regards to the workforce issue, there was another article, I believe it was by Cameron, uh, by Dr. Bennett et al., in terms of talking about the, the geographical uh, distribution of residency as well as the job distribution within emergency medicine. You know, where the, the, the large metropolitan areas, the large urban uh, cities are heavily populated and can be a little bit difficult to get a job. But, in, you know, in between the two coasts, there's a lot of opportunity. I think that's where, from a residency perspective, for jobs after residency, that there's definitely a need to fill those markets. So I think it depends on where you want to go, where you want to practice, what kind of you know, environment you want to practice in. Um, that will ultimately determine, you know, what what kind of jobs are available and how tight or open that market is. Uh, but I, but it's reassuring to hear that that there are reasonable number of jobs across the country. In terms of now transitioning to talking about those residents who are now looking for, you know, starting their job search, the most of the people who are now finishing residency are probably found jobs that I suspected this into late into the year while we're recording this in March. But what advice would you give to your residents who are starting their job searches? Yeah, I love this question because I probably have a little different look than, than a number of folks would when thinking about this. And having been through several job searches myself and then advising other people what to think of, I really think that it's important to take a step back and look at what are the things you love to do and, and really defining that in terms of, like, for example, I would say I love a job that has an opportunity to be creative. I love a job that has autonomy. I love a job that has you know, a variety of different sort of factors that would go into it. Some people may want to be in an environment that's going to be involved in discovery, you know, so doing science in an environment. Some people want to be involved in a place where they really value efficiency, and so being someplace that's extremely efficient. And I would start with those big characteristics first. Before you get caught up in sort of thinking about contracts or, you know, who admits a hip fracture at the hospital or what, you know, what level of trauma does it take or how many patients per hour, all of those things are really important, and I'm not, you know, not saying not to consider them. Certainly contracts and things become very important. But I think for kind of sustaining happiness for... For either residents that are graduating or people that are looking to make a career change or you have to move for whatever reason, really thinking about what are the things that are sort of your passions that you like to do and that really kind of fill your cup, so to speak, and then finding places that align with those. Because there are lots of different environments. You know, you could practice in a, in a really austere and rural place and maybe really exciting to just be the doctor, you know, the one that's going to be there not having a team of people and that, and that feeling of just sort of being there, you know, not truly on your own, but somewhat on your own and really being able to have to be the one who that might be really energizing and exciting for some folks to do. Other people may really want to be in a place where they're teaching learners all the time and that's really engaging and exciting and, and happy for them to do that. So being looking at places where you have an opportunity to be with learners. And I think by, by kind of framing it that way first and trying to align those places that would be aligned with your primary interests and passions, then all the other stuff, the, you know, the salary and the patients per hour and, you know, various like contract issues and stuff, I think it all be worked out uh, after that. No, I, I, that's, that's a very fascinating way of thinking about this. And I appreciate that advice for the listeners um, to think about that overarching, you know, thematic issues first before you start getting into the nitty gritty details, which are important, as you alluded to. Um, I want to now pivot a little bit and talk about the inverse of that. So, you know, from the chair's perspective, what do you look for when you're hiring a faculty in the academic setting? I mean, there are probably some overarching things, and then probably a lot of it's very specific to the type of role that you're hiring for. So, you know, in, in general, I'm always, the people are really important to me. So I want somebody who's going to be a great team player, who's going to bring positive energy to the environment, who's going to be willing to solve problems, who's going to be you know, a, a good leader at whatever level of they are in the department, 
And, you know, there's a variety of those sort of personal characteristics that I think are really important. And generally with the right person, sometimes there are other things that are trainable. And so you can kind of work and, and get people, you know, up to speed if they need to bridge a little bit on, on a certain skill uh, or two. On the other hand, there are very, there are some particular jobs where we're looking for very specific things in people. You know, we really want, if I want somebody to be a fellowship director of a certain subspecialty, they have to be you know, trained in that subspecialty. And so there are going to be there are going to be things that you're going to look for that are going to have to be specific skill sets that people will bring to the position. And so it's really a, a match of those things. So what I try to do is clearly define what I think the skills are that are needed. And so hopefully there's a little bit of a self-selection and people that apply, sometimes sometimes more, more, more than others, people will you know, be a bit introspective and say, do I meet the skill sets? And then once we can identify who has sort of the required skill base, then all of the other you know, personality and energy they're going to bring and, you know, kind of those intangible type of skills, then that becomes super important because you may be looking at a number of folks that have really goals, but then it's going to be those personal qualities that are going to be key to, to growing the department. And for me, I want to think about, you know, Harbor, I think, is a terrific place right now. I want it to be terrific in 10 years and in 20 years, and I want us to kind of continue to, you know, the legacy that we've had before and sort of growing into the future. And so I'm always be looking for team members that I think can help us carry that uh, forward in that direction. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you so much. And I think that just about wraps up uh, our podcast today as well. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. And uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate you inviting me. It was great talking with you. Likewise, thanks. thanks.